Welcome to the Clinician Researcher Podcast, where academic clinicians learn the skills to build their own research program, whether or not they have a mentor. As clinicians, we spend a decade or more as trainees learning to take care of patients. When we finally start our careers, we want to build research programs, but then we find that our years of clinical training did not adequately prepare us to lead a research program. Through no fault of our own, we struggle to find mentors, and when we can't, we quit. However, clinicians hold the keys to the greatest research breakthroughs. For this reason, the Clinician Researcher podcast exists to give academic clinicians the tools to build their own research program, whether or not they have a mentor. Now, introducing your host, Teosi Onwemina. Welcome to the Clinician Researcher Podcast. I'm your host, TSCN Womena, and it is such a pleasure to be here today because I'm not by myself. Today, I have an extra special guest, Dr. Scott Peslak, and I'm going to ask him to introduce himself. First of all, I'm going to say, Scott, welcome to the show. Great. Thank you for having me, Tracy. I really appreciate it. So our audience would like to get to know you better. So if you would please introduce yourself, especially in the context of your career as a clinician scientist. Absolutely. So I am, so my background is essentially I went to the University of Scranton, graduated there in 2006. And, you know, when I first started thinking about what I wanted to do with my career, I really was focused on a career in, in Madison. And I, I had a, a very a series of really important experiences with, with the research that I had done, both at the University of Scranton, as well as summer research programs that got me interested in research, which we can talk about in a little bit as well. And I applied to the MD-PhD program at the University of Rochester, and I was there for eight years from 20, 2006 to 2014. And then I came to the University of Pennsylvania. I've been here ever since. I did my uh, internship and residency in internal medicine. I'm here at UPenn, followed by my fellowship in hematology and oncology. And I just started as a professor of medicine um, in the Department of Medicine or Division of Hematology and Oncology at UPenn here just this past July. So I have a brand new lab um, in which I study sickle cell disease and thalassemia and other hemoglobinopathies. And I see red cell disorders as well as adult patients with sickle cell disease and thalassemia in the clinic here at UPenn. And so I'm very excited to be able to share my my journey through that whole process, but it's, I really am tremendously privileged to be able to work with this, this very special group of patients, both in terms of the research that I do, as well as the clinical care that I, I take care of too. Wow, Scott, one of the things I, I hear as you describe your journey is that that took a long time. <laughs> Can you yeah. speak to, speak to how much time it takes and the fact that you, you don't get you're not yet there at the top of your career, right? You really are kind of still just starting out, even though you've been doing this for a while. Sometimes many early career faculty or, or fellows think, wow, if I really want to start in research, and you actually had a chance to start a little bit earlier than most, this, what, what are some of the concerns and challenges and benefits of just thinking about how long it all takes? Yeah, I, I think that's a question I get asked a lot. I would say by people that I work with, but more so by family members saying, oh, you're still in training. And finally, I can say, no, I'm, I finally completed training. I think my perspective on, on the journey is that it is a long time, but I will say that the, the process is when I tell people that are looking for 
looking for advice as to how to approach this long training process. I think getting early experiences you mentioned is really important because you, before you commit to a long-term training program, particularly programs like MD-PhD that usually last at least eight years, four years in medical school, and then typically four to five years in a PhD, um, you want to make sure that you've had the kind of experiences that will prepare you for that journey and also to make sure that's what you want to do with your career. And it's hard to know initially, um, but I always tell um, my trainees to really to try to get as much experience doing research in the lab during their undergraduate career. Some people will have longitudinal projects during their undergraduate career. Some people at small institutions like my own, University of Scranton, I did research there, but also did summer programs at the University of Stony Brook and Princeton University. And so I got a variety of experiences. And some people will take a, a gap year to be able to figure that out. One or two years in which they can do research as a technician, research technician in a laboratory or um, a more in-depth experience. And I think I usually tell people to, you know, you don't want to prolong the process any longer than it's necessary, but you want to make sure that this is the right, the right fit for you. And so I think as long as it is, as long as you've, you've had those, those experiences, you know, shadowing in the clinic, as well as doing basic research or translation research in the lab, getting that hands-on experience, I view, I view the time as more of a journey than, than actually having a definitive endpoint. Because ultimately, if it's really what you want to do with your career, the whole process is, is about getting those experiences, making connections, networking throughout your MD and your PhD time period. So I usually encourage people that I, I mentor to think of it as, as a process of really establishing your interests in your career, as opposed to saying, I need to get this number of papers out, or I need to get uh, this, this kind of training um, from a resume standpoint. It's more about it, viewing it as a total, total journey, I would say. I appreciate your saying that, because I think that when we look at it as a destination, then of course, eight years is too long to get to a destination. But when you look at it as enjoying the journey, it's like, wow, I get eight years to really yeah. do this thing that I enjoy doing. And I and I, I love the way you, you talk about really making sure that this is what you want to do and then making a commitment, right? Because it's, it's, it is a commitment. And, and what you don't want to do is in the middle of all that say, well, I'm not sure this is what I wanted to do. I imagine, though, that you had challenges along the way. And I wonder at what point in your eight-year journey and beyond did you stop and say, I'm not sure this is for me and what kept you going? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think everybody has, during the process, these existential crises in some way and thinking, is this really what I want to do? Is this the career that I really want to pursue? I'll get to my experience in a minute, but I think the key part about understanding how to get through that is having the right mentorship and the right support around you. I think this is this process of being a clinician researcher is not a solo journey. This is a, it takes a whole team of people to be able to do that. So having mentorship along the way, I think some people who are maybe just starting the process might view it as I need to do this on my own. I need to be strong. I need to figure everything else out by myself. And that, that is not, I would not recommend that. And it's also not the way that really science works, even when you get into, into faculty and, and collaborations, really, it's all about having the right mentorship team and the right support team around you. So establishing that and keeping contact with different kinds of mentors along the process, your person who is your 
primary research mentor will likely not be the same person that is your primary clinical mentor or your primary career mentor, or even your primary writing mentor. These could all be different people. And so having different people to go to with different kinds of challenges that you encounter is really critical. So I would strongly encourage your listeners to establish and ask for mentorship all along the way. But coming in, it's important when you have mentorship to have, have, a, have an ask for that person. To not just say, can you be my mentor? You want to think about before you meet with that mentor and say, this is what I would be helpful to have from your mentorship process and, and your own experiences to help me continue along this whole process. And so that's really critical. My journey, I would say, is that I, I was very fortunate in my first rotation during my MD-PhD at the University of Rochester to find an incredible physician scientist mentor, Jim Pallas, who's a physician, pediatric uh, physician who cared for patients with different rare blood disorders and cancers clinically and studied aspects of the red blood cell and how it develops and the embryo and the fetus and eventually into adulthood. And so I happened to, I was interviewed with him initially in my process moving to Rochester for the program and rotated with him first and ended up back in his lab for my thesis project. And he was an incredibly important mentor throughout the whole process to the point where he, I still collaborate and, and talk with him for larger big picture career mentorship still today. And, and I think there are time periods, right, during, during the transition processes, particularly for, for people doing MD-PhDs, where it can be really challenging. So I think when you're within, you know, the first two years of your MD program, it's a pretty, pretty laid out for you. It's almost like going back to high school. You're all in one big room together. You have, you have all your friends, you're meeting a lot of new people, you meet lunch together. It's very interesting. And then, and then you go, you know, you leave your class after two years and you go to the PhD program. And so essentially all the connections you've made at a personal level go away in some way. And that could be really challenging for a lot of young trainees. And so establishing, having that longitudinal mentorship is really important at that stage and choosing a lab where you feel like it really aligns with your, not only your research interests, but your, your personal, um, viewpoint as to how you want to approach science and medicine. That's hard to know at first, but going and doing rotations, going to lab meetings, meeting the people in your lab, seeing if that's a right fit for you is really critical. The other time period that can be challenging, I think, in terms of knowing whether it's the right thing to do or not is on the, the back end of the PhD, moving back to medical, the third and fourth year of medical school, in which, you know, everything at the, essentially at the end of your PhD, you are really the expert in the world, probably in your small niche of what you're working on in the lab. And then you go back to third year of medicine where you're, you know nothing essentially about all the rotations that you're doing. And I think it can be really challenging. I distinctly remember, you know, it's very challenging when you are on a rotation in which you have patients that are very ill um, because I think uh, particularly as a scientist, you want to be able to have a, um, a, significant degree of planning and control over what you're doing and your, your research and overall, and things happen clinically that are unpredictable. And so having, having support around you to be able to talk to your, you know, co-medical students, having program mentors to get through some of these more challenging patient encounters where no matter what, what you do, even if you're the best clinician in the world, some of these patients become very, very ill and even die. And so this, this can be very challenging, I think, for people who are doing MD, PhD programs or MD with research, because it's a very different approach to, to your daily 
to your daily job and to how you're approaching science and medicine uh, between the two. And, and having that experience early, everybody goes through it at some point. It's normal. I just want your listeners to know it's very normal to uh, be faced with that challenge and, and struggle somewhat through it. But having that, having that mentorship and, and knowing that others have gone through it before you is really the most important thing to be able to, to weather these transitions and to continue on your career. That, that's really excellent. Thank you for highlighting all those things. So one of the things that kind of like a big theme of what I heard, hear you talking about is community. And, and that's community and the people who surround you when you're going through different phases of your training and also community and the mentors that lead you along the way and guide you along the way. And, and, and you know, in your journey, as you were talking about how you never did it by yourself and you don't encourage anybody to do it by themselves. And I do think isolation can be a challenge because, you know, you mentioned at the end, someone else has gone through the same problem. But when we're going through a challenge, especially when research is not working or projects are not going as you want them to, there's the sense that I'm the only one in the world to whom this has ever happened and therefore I quit. And being able to talk to someone else, even if they can't help you, for them to be able to say, oh, I experienced this as well, already normalizes your experience and it makes a difference as well. Yeah, and, also, and if, I could, yeah, if I could just add to that part too, I think that that's a, I'd say particularly when once you make the transition to the next phase of training and residency, internship and residency and fellowship, if, if you don't have that support system and ask others for help, you know, burnout is a really big problem in medicine and in science. And, and so if you're trying to do both, it can be very challenging. And so I, I think one of the, one of the, my most, I think the best parts about being a clinician researcher is that you have people on both sides of the community to help support you through that. You have the scientists, you have the clinicians, you can go to either one, depending on what, what you're struggling with or what the challenge is at any given point in a daily basis or in a career phase basis. And I think that the, the most useful thing is if something is, if you have a very challenging day, for example, if you have really challenging patients on service, you can go back to lab and, and ask questions kind of to, to transition back and forth between the two it can be very challenging, I think, but it can also be somewhat of a respite on both sides because you could have very challenging patients and do some experiments in lab and vice versa. You can be really frustrated with where your research is going and you could take up a whole new direction or, you know, really focus on the clinical aspects of, of your work for a period of time. And I think that's really one of the, the, the best antidotes to burnout that I've seen in people who are successful in pursuing a career as a clinician researcher. Absolutely. So what I hear is that in a sense, your frustrations can become an advantage. Yeah. How do you take the frustrations that you see in the clinical space and think about how to best answer questions in the, in the research space? And when research is not working, looking to your patients kind of as a source of inspiration for where the next place, the next step might lead. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think this is a, and, and, you know, I'm, I'm a, classical hematologist. So I study non-cancer um, blood disorders. And I think there's a long and storied history of, of this approach in hematology. You know, if you look back at to really all of the, the major, the giants in, in classical hematology ran labs and, and also saw patients and their clinical care and the observations they made on the clinical side really informed almost everything of what they did uh, on the research side. And so I think for some period of time that that approach went away, but it, I feel like it's returning now, uh, especially with a lot of the 
really advanced genetic techniques that we can have where for a while we would, as hematologists, look for sy syndromes and syndromic presentations and understand how that works. Now we can take patients that are very, very potentially ill and complicated diseases, understand their genetics better on the clinical side, and then apply that to the work that we're doing in the lab. And I think that there's nowhere else that that is more evident than one of the main things that I do, which is studying sickle cell disease. We've known for many years, one of the things that I study in lab is trying to increase levels of a protective form of hemoglobin, something called fetal hemoglobin. And this is, it, it is resistant to the sickling effects that, that are present in sickle cell disease. And so if we can find ways to increase levels of this subtype of hemoglobin, then we can really treat patients very effectively. And we know that there are certain patients who have genetic changes that have higher levels of fetal hemoglobin at baseline, and that leads to essentially have them having a much more reduced intensity and frequency of pain episodes and many, many fewer complications. And only recently we have identified the genetic basis behind those where they're actually changing the ways that certain regulators are expressing levels of fetal hemoglobin or, or pressing their expression. And so it's really exciting. I think that's something that people have identified for many, many years, for example, in sickle cell disease, we're finally understanding now what is the genetic basis behind that? And we, and we use some of those observations that we see on the clinical side to really drive our scientific research. That's really exciting. And at the very beginning, you used the C word. <laughs> you used the classical, you said classical hematology, which is the official term. Um, I, I wanted there's, to there's some debate, I would say. <laughs> I would I would be one of those people in the debate. Yes. But yeah, so it was interesting. I was gonna ask you if you if you would call yourself a classical hematologist. I, I know our audience is not necessarily specifically hematology, but would you speak to that? Would you speak to kind of the challenges and nomenclature, but but yes. deep more deeply, the challenges in recruiting faculty to classical hematology? What what is that about? And from your perspective, how do we change that? Absolutely. So I think, I think, as I mentioned, as I mentioned initially, a lot of the initial seminal work and the giants in the field in hematology were done in the field of what do you want to call it? Classical hematology, benign hematology is how I was trained, but people don't really, these aren't benign disorders, right? They're really significant mm -hmm. or just hematology, but that gets to be a little bit confusing. So, and, and I think with the advent of the tremendous amount of anti-cancer therapies that, that were emerged in the 90s and early 2000s. A lot of the focus and people that were interested in hematology went to the malignant hematology side. And so I think a lot of our most talented trainees in that period of time uh, were recruited over to, to malignant hematology. I consider that as well, you know, until I came, until I came to Penn and started my fellowship and I had you know, tremendous mentors here. So in particular, you know, D Dr. Charles Abrams, who is uh, a longtime faculty here and leads a lot of the research efforts and really a fantastic hematologist. And, and Dr. Joel Bennett, who recently passed, who was a really a, a giant in the field of hemostasis thrombosis here at Penn, uh, were both tremendous mentors to me. And they, I think it really appealed to me in terms of, of classical hematology that you can study something that is fascinating from a biological perspective across the lifespan and, and also have the kind of relationship that primary care doctors have with their patients. And so that combination of, of things, the, the really the 
chronic chronic care of a serious disease and the, the deep relationships with patients and studying really fascinating biology drew me to to hematology. And so, but I would say not a lot of, you know, it, it gets changing now because we have some really exciting new therapies coming out in the hemoglobinopathy space, particularly with gene therapy with sickle cell disease and thalassemia, which has fascinating bi biology behind it and getting a lot of people interested in it. But, and, and newer therapies that are being developed of which I study, you know, the kind of pharmacologic uh, inducers of fetal hemoglobin and different signaling pathways in, in the treatment of sickle cell disease. But it's still challenging to recruit people. I will say that that has changed in the last uh, several years in which we've gotten many more residents that are applying into the program that are interested in, in classical or, or benign hematology. And that's really exciting for the field, but there's still a tremendous shortage of uh, physicians that are trained in this field. And so I think we as clinician researchers really need to be able, need to advocate for our work and, and to talk. I, I feel like we are really good at, at talking to other specialists in the field about, you know, the, the latest paper that's come out describing the newest signaling pathways in sickle cell disease. But we are, I would say, generally less adept at describing this to, in a way that helps recruit younger trainees to the field. And there's, it really depends on the audience, right? So you have to try to figure out I don't want to say to be a salesman, but you want to, to show why you fell in love with this field in the first place. And so I think trying to use as many outlets as possible to do that, you know, whether it's through publications, which is really critical for what we do in the lab, but also through social media platforms, through giving talks, through community organizations, you know, this, this month is September is sickle cell awareness month. And so we are, have a lot of outreach programs from the, both the patient level and the community level to talk about what we do. And I think the more interest that there is and the more we talk about our work in a way that makes it equally exciting for others who may not be in our exact field, the more that we can recruit and have people really join us on, on this journey to treat patients across the whole lifespan with these really chronic and debilitating disorders that maybe aren't as historically as interesting to people as, as malignancies and cancer, but are equally, equally compelling and even more so I would argue in a biological sense and desperately needed to be able to, to care for this really underserved patient population. Absolutely. And, and I think that a lot of upcoming fellows or junior faculty may not have the role models or mentorship that allows them to continue these interests. But I love what you talk about in advocating for our own careers, like we're, we're responsible. And so sometimes it is easier to say, well, this is who I have around me. I'll just go with the flow. What's harder is to say, this is what I really want to do and who can help me get there. I was going to say, I think doing this early in, in the career is, is really helpful too. You know, my, I've been doing this. My, my wife is, is incredibly talented in high school teacher at, a, at a, a private school west of Philadelphia. And I go every year and talk to the students there to try to tell them about all the exciting things I'm doing in, in hematology and just in general medicine and, and try to make it interactive about all the different aspects of, you know, being a physician scientist and all the levels of what you can do with, it, with training, whether it's, you know, doing MD and doing a significant research experience or doing MD, PhD. And it's really been very rewarding because I think I had not even heard the words MD, PhD before I got to college. And, and I see students really light up when they, when they see this, because I think they 
are interested in caring for people and, 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 and medicine. And I think they also are stimulated by a lot of the research or the science that they, they're learning through, you know, through my wife's classes and through other classes at, at, uh, that they um, hear about in, in high school. And the fact that they might be able to do this, this combination of things in their career, I think is, is something that um, the earlier that we talk to students about these kind of pathways, the better, not just hematology really in general, but it's, I, I will advocate for my, my field as well. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. So, so we're coming up to the end of the, the show. And I want to ask, because one thing you spoke to that does resonate with me is the importance of early exposure. But for, for many junior faculty, even early career faculty who haven't had the research experiences or the research exposure that's needed, there's sometimes a sense that it's too late. All I have is clinical experience. I guess I'll just stay with the clinical with clinical and not not move in, into research. I want you to speak to like when is it too late to pursue a research career? And for someone who's starting late in the game, what strategies might they use potentially to be successful? Yeah, it's a really, really important question. I think that from a research perspective, and, and I, I think you don't really realize this until you start running a lab, most by far the most important quality um, of somebody that is interested in pursuing research is being interested and motivated in doing the research. You know, you, I think a lot of, as you mentioned, a lot of people will say, oh, I, I don't know how to do this certain technique. I, I'm not sure. I don't have this, necessarily the skills to be able to do that. You're bringing a different perspective. So if you're a clinician that's interested in getting into research, the kinds of um, experience that you have taking care of patients, the kinds of questions you can ask is incredibly valuable um, for any lab that's out there because you're, you can design and think about questions that somebody who is not clinically trained would never think of. Um, and so that's a, an incredible um, value addition for the lab and you can learn the techniques. So for instance, and I experienced this myself, going off to residency and then coming back to the lab, there's a lot that changes in science in that five or six years. You know, CRISPR, CRISPR technology didn't exist when I finished my PhD and I came back and there's all kinds of complicated techniques and I learned it and that's what I use at a daily basis in my lab right now. And so I think there's, it's really not too late to pursue research because the experiences you've had up to that point are absolutely going to be incredibly beneficial and valued by the group that you're in. I think that the question about how to how to get that experience later on, I, I would say that this comes down to mentorship as well. You know, talking to, for example, your your primary clinical mentor or your the the chief of your division or subdivision at your institution. They've interacted with a lot of people. And even if they're not a basic scientist, they know people who are, and they know people who have presented at different scientific presentations in your division. So uh, one way would be to speak with them. Another would be to try to start going to some of the sessions and talks, both by people internally as well as invited speakers, because the more you hear about different kinds of techniques and different kinds of research, even if it doesn't seem like it's directly related to what you're interested in the field, the more connections you can make to be able to, to get into that, that aspect. So I would say that if you feel like you have a passion for performing research, whether it's really anywhere in the spectrum, clinical, translational, or basic science, identifying mentors and asking if you can participate in a project and getting that experience is really critical. And, and people very rarely will say no to you because they recognize 
good mentors will recognize the value of the training that you've had thus far in your career. And you both benefit from that kind of collaboration and, and work in the research side of the lab. I love it. If you're interested, that may be the most important quality you have, your interest and motivation, and connect to community. And if you don't know a research community that you can connect to, there are other people who can connect you. I love it. Well, thank you, Scott. You just shared some amazing insights today. And I feel like it's, I mean, I'm not starting right now, but if I was, it would, it would be very just inspiring to hear you speak about how it's not too late. And I really do appreciate you sharing your insights. I wonder if you have any closing thoughts that you want to share. Yeah, I, I thank you, Toysa, for having me on. And I really appreciate it. And I, I would say that I think my, my closing thought and recommendation would be really try to get as, as many experiences as you can along the whole journey. You know, oftentimes the most useful and important aspects of what have led me to my current interests are, are experiences that may not seem directly relevant at the time, but, you know, especially when you're training, saying yes to different experiences, to giving invited talks, to, to networking is really, really critical. So I can't, I can't overstate the importance of, of making connections throughout your whole process because the connections that I made during my PhD, I still use today and are incredibly important for collaborations on my ongoing work. So I would say, you know, being, being active, being engaged, network strongly and make lots of connections and, and really try and, and go out on, go out on a limb and try new experiences because that's where the most important experiments, aspects of your career, career development, and really understanding who you are as a clinician scientist, that, that is where that happens when you kind of move outside your comfort zone. I love it. Thank you, Scott. All right, everyone, you've heard him. If this is what you want to do, you should pursue it. And it doesn't mean it'll be easy, but what you are interested in is worth fighting for. And so definitely someone else needs to hear this, either a peer mentor or a mentee, or, or perhaps you want to share it with your, your group, please do it as, as, as somebody else needs to hear this and definitely be encouraged in their career. Scott, thank you again for being on the show. Thank you very much for having me. All right, everyone, we'll see you again next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Clinician Researcher Podcast, where academic clinicians learn the skills to build their own research program, whether or not they have a mentor. If you found the information in this episode to be helpful, don't keep it all to yourself someone else needs to hear it. So take a minute right now and share it. As you share this episode, you become part of our mission to help launch a new generation of clinician researchers who make transformative discoveries that change the way we do health.